Hi, we're sisters Amy and Nancy Harrington, the founders of the Passionistas Project podcast, where we give women a platform to tell their own unfiltered stories. On every episode, we discuss the unique ways in which each woman is following her passions, talk about how she defines success, and explore her path to breaking down the barriers that women too often face. Today, we're talking with Marion Clinier, a cycling, health, fitness, and nutritional coach and public speaker. At the age of 22, Marion discovered that she had epilepsy and would have to take medication for the rest of her life. So she made a promise to herself that she would never let anything get in the way of her achieving what she set her mind to. During her 27 years as a track cyclist, she earned 12 national titles, six world championship titles, two Olympic silver medals, and one world record. So please welcome to the show, Marion Clinier. Hello. Thank you. Hello. We're so excited to have you here today and to find out about your fascinating journey. So um, to start, we always like to ask, what's the one thing you're most passionate about? Equality. Um, you know, you mentioned when you introduced me that I was a professional athlete. And yes, I trained like a professional athlete, but I wasn't paid as a professional athlete. It was pretty much all volunteer. And granted, I did find my own sponsorship, my own gigs and contracts, which essentially led me to stop because I got tired of, of always having to do several jobs at once. But um, today, one of my passions is really ensuring that all women's sports are considered as a profession and that women aren't fired for, um, in France, there were a few men, women who were let go of club teams for what they call a foot cove, which would be a, um, I'm trying to find the translation in English. Um, um, oh, it would be like a, a grave error in your job because they got pregnant. And so as a woman athlete, you're not allowed to get pregnant. So we've connected with um, a national federation of associations and syndicates for sports. And they've really stepped up to the plate to help us defend um, women and, and make sure that the Minister of Sports recognizes all women athletes as professional athletes. So it's, it's a difficult um, period to transition to, but um, it took us eight months to negotiate with the French Cycling Federation so that they would recognize um, the, their own athletes as professional if they had a contract to race on a pro team. I mean, they had the contract, so they were obviously racing as a professional athlete, but the Federation still wrote amateur on their license. And it makes such a huge difference to know that your own Federation recognizes you as a legitimate and credible professional athlete. And if they don't write that on your license, I mean, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, does it really make a difference? Yeah, when you go and ask for a loan and you show that you're a professional athlete, they know you've got checks coming in every month. And But it, it also just in terms of, um, your own federation believing in what you're doing and believing that women represent, you know, the, the country. So um, that, that has been my passion for the last, uh, I guess, yeah, last 30, 35 years. I mean, as long as I raced, it was something I always uh, tried to fight for. Amazing. And, and is that, um, you're obviously in, in France, but is that still an issue internationally for female athletes? It's yeah, it varies across the board. Um, there are today nine um, teams that are considered professional. Um, the, the first teams went professional in 2020. So they're called World Women's World Tour. 
So there are nine teams recognized by the International Cycling Union, and they have to follow a strict guideline um, that allows them to be world tours. So they have, uh, you know, they have a, a huge deposit that they have to put down a bank guarantee. Um, they have to abide by uh, certain rules that are usually followed up by the International uh, Cycling Federation to make sure that everything is followed strictly. And the women are required to, um, to get a minimum salary. Two of the teams in the world tour teams stepped up to the plate and said, hey, we don't see a difference between the training our women do and our men's team. So we're going to pay the women the same that we pay the men. So that was Trek Segafredo and uh, Team Bike Exchange from Australia. So hopefully all the other teams that have a men's team as well will step up to the plate and do the same. Um, Let's take a step back. Um, where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? And talk about the dual identity of being a French and American and how that impacted you. My father is a professor of sociology and um, my sister was born in France. And um, as a sociologist, he couldn't find any work in France. And he was offered a job as a professor at the University of Chicago. So my family moved to Chicago in 63. And then um, my father got a job at the University of Northwestern where he taught for 25 years. And I was born um, in Chicago. And then we moved to Evanston. And I grew up in a, a cozy little suburb, uh, kind of on the border of Evanston and Skokie. Um, a very interesting mixed neighborhood. There was, you know, on one end, a synagogue, the other end, the Catholic church, lots of um, Irish Catholic families with 16 kids and, you know, the O'Malley's, the O'Brien's, the uh, McLaughlin's. And, <laughs> and um, there was a park right down the street where they used to, to flood the park in the winter and we'd all go ice skating and, you know, people would ring cowbells at 6 p.m. to get all their kids to come home for dinner. So I was always left that extra hour because we didn't eat till seven because that was the French dinner time. So, um, yeah, it was, I mean, it was a really cool place to grow up. Um, I was definitely a tomboy, um, spent more time climbing trees and running around than, you know, doing other things um, and had a, a really mixed group of, of friends, um, very eclectic. So that was, that was nice. I was convinced I was adopted because my sister was born in France and I was born in the States. So I, I just thought that, yeah, I must not <laughs> have been part of the the family and and kind of always um yeah felt like uh i didn't fit in so that's uh um and what else uh yeah um, when i was 14 um yeah i got went to high school it was kind of on the the suburb of evanston in chicago and um started tampering as you do at that age with pot and mushrooms and all kinds of things and my parents freaked out and my father took a job at university of maryland thinking that the change would be good for me and that um yeah i think they they were really worried about what i was doing so lo and behold when we moved there um probably got a little bit worse before it got better and then um i realized that sports was really my thing and that is not at all my parents thing so um they were sort of left with um another question mark on okay now what <laughs> now what do we do with this kid you know so um yeah i mean i just i found my own way pretty much and and continued pursuing um what i felt was a pull for me to go towards when did you first get interested in cycling and when did it become like a, a really serious endeavor for you? 
Well, I, I, you know, I started my first sport, well, I was passionate about horses as a kid. So I did a lot of, you know, horseback riding and worked as a groom to pay for my horse shows. Um, and then I played ultimate Frisbee. That was one of my big uh, sports and organized uh, the East Coast National High School Championships, which was kind of a, a big deal. And that was good fun. And then um, when I was 22, um, I was in a store um, in Washington, I think, and I had a first ever grand mal seizure. So I was taken, well, that people asked me my name and I, I, I knew I knew it, but I couldn't answer them. It was kind of one of those things on the tip of my tongue. And I, you know, I knew that, I mean, I was like, God, what a stupid question. Of course I know my name, it's, and it wouldn't come out. And then they asked where I lived and I was like, well, yeah, I, I know where I live, you know, just give me a second, it'll come to me. And then when they asked me who the president was, I was absolutely certain it was Nixon. And Nixon had been impeached 15 years prior. I think at the time it was Reagan. And um, so they shipped me off to the Washington Hospital Center. And I spent, uh, I think I spent two days there. And at the end of the two days, a woman walked in, a small Argentine woman who's, uh, who said, okay, hi, I'm your neurologist. So um, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is you don't have a brain tumor. So that's not what provoked the seizure. The bad news is you have a condition called epilepsy and you shouldn't talk about it to anyone because it's considered taboo. Some people consider it a little bit, you know, mystical and whatever, but um, definitely keep it to yourself. Uh, don't go out alone, don't do any sports and you're gonna have to take medication for the rest of your life and your driver's license is suspended for one year starting today. Um, pretty much so they could find out if I would react to a treatment and what, you know, the best treatment would be. So, um, I, uh, I was a bit taken aback um, really by all of these, um, uh, these things that I wasn't supposed to do. And normally when people tell me I can't do something, I do the opposite. So I kind of did just that. Um, I worked 30 kilometers from my house and I just don't have the patience to wait for buses and trains and just feel like I lose time. So I felt the most efficient thing to do would be to buy a bike since I couldn't drive anymore. And then I could just ride 60K a day to work and back and, you know, make my own energy and that would be that. So um, I got to it the next day and found um, a really a hunk of junk green bike um, in the one ads um, in the Washington Post and uh, bought myself my first uh, steel frame. Uh, it was called a Nord de France, which I think is what inspired me because it was it had a French name. So um, I felt like my roots were fitting in there a little bit and started riding 60K a day pretty much the following week and, uh, you know, getting to work and back. And I told the people at work what was going on just in case, you know, I had a seizure, what they should do and that I didn't know much more about it than they would. So, you know, we were going to have to figure it out as it went because I, I really had no more information to, uh, to give them. And, um, yeah, off I went. Um, and then a couple of weeks or months into riding to work and back, I started um, playing with time. I, I kind of got bored just riding there and back. So I started leaving five minutes later every day to see if I could still make it to work on time. So I was setting myself up doing these little time trials. And so I was getting to work more huffier and puffier every day and, and beat red and you know, sweaty and gross. And one of the guys I worked with, um, whose name was Steve, asked me what I was training for. And I burst out laughing and I said, well, you know, this is pretty much my car replacement. It's definitely not going to help, uh, 
you know, if, if I was to do anything else with it. And um, he asked me if I wanted to try a bike race and that there was a bike race for women on the University of Maryland uh, campus. And I was sort of surprised, you know, that he came out with this question and said, well, um, you know, I've, I've never ridden with anyone other than my bicycle. So uh, it could be dangerous <laughs> for, for them and for me. I mean, you never know. It's... Um, could be a risk involved. And he said, no, no, don't worry about it. It's open to all levels. So just give it a try. And um, so we talked about it for a while and uh, he convinced me to, to go. So I turned up um, and I knew the circuit because it was uh, around the stadium, the outside of the stadium at the University of Maryland uh, College Park campus. And um, so I started riding laps. And of course I showed up with um, underwear on under my cycling shorts because I didn't know anything about chafing and that that wasn't what you do. It just you know, seemed normal to me. You would wear underwear under skin tight Lycra <laughs> shorts, um, bright orange wool socks and tennis shoes with matching laces to my socks, of course, and um, a white t-shirt with the sleeves ripped off. And um, so I'm doing laps and all this and somehow I managed to touch a greasy chain on my calf. So I had what we call in cycling terms, a cat three chain mark, which kind of, you know, means that you're, you're sort of a, a wank anyway. <laughs> so I get to the starting line and put myself in the first row because that way no one's gonna be in front of me and I won't bother anyone. And um, I'm kind of waiting for the race to get going and Steve was giving me a few tips. And then I heard this buzz behind me. It was like, oh my God, do you see that girl in the front row? Look, she's got a cat three chain mark on her calf and look at her bike. Oh my God, it's full of grease and she doesn't have bike shoes and she's wearing underwear on under her chamois. I mean, it's just all this, you know, what's going on and on. So it took me a while to realize that they were talking about me. And then I started thinking, oh, you know, if, if anything goes wrong, if I make anybody fall, then it's not going to go unnoticed. So I'm going to have to be savvy uh, tactically. So, uh, you know, when the Peloton goes by me, let me just hang on to the last wheel and, and really hang on for dear life. So I kind of snapped out of it when the gunshot went, the guy was telling us to go. And I just put it in the biggest gear I had, powered to the front, and then just stayed there. And every time someone would move up and try to pass me, I'd accelerate for their safety, really, because I was afraid if we came side by side into a turn and I took somebody out that it definitely wouldn't be a, an advantage to myself or to them. And so we're going in, you know, around and around. And at one point, Steve screams out at me, you know, Marion, get some cover, cover yourself. And I'm looking up at the sky and I can get some cover from what? What is this guy talking about? Two laps later, he tells me, grab a wheel, grab a wheel. So I'm looking at, you know, my front wheel's fine. My rear wheel is still there and no idea what he's talking about. So the laps afterwards, I was going by the start finish line like this. So I wouldn't look at him and get distracted. And, you know, we're going on and on. And I'm, I'm by this time, it's, I think we had one lap to go and I was dead tired. I was really starting to, to feel the effects, but I think we averaged close to 40 kilometers an hour and it was that the race was about 40 K and um, the last lap, three girls came around me. So I came in fourth and I was absolutely elated. And I, I went to see the girl who won. I was like, Oh, wow. You know, I was, the endorphins were all kicking in. I was like, that was so cool. What could I do to get better, to improve and to race like you guys and blah, blah, blah. You know, it was kind of like a groupie. And so she took a step back and, and did one of these, gave me the once over and said, change it all <laughs> the bike is too big for you 
and definitely don't wear underwear under your chamois when you go to take a pee you'll understand why and you know just kind of went through all the things and, and never stay at the front an entire race and you know and then she gave me some compliments too said you obviously showed you have the power but you know you've got to put in some finesse into your pedal stroke and and steve was was really excited too he's he was used to riding so he took me under his wing and um uh, we went from there and uh, I raced and trained with a group of guys and some girls that were coming up to in the Washington area. And uh, four years later, four or five years later, I won the national cycling championships and then and took a bronze and a silver and was um, refused a spot on the national team for the world championships that were in Japan that year, because in their eyes, having epilepsy would make me a risk to the team. So my answer to that was pretty much, well, fuck you, watch me. <laughs> and um, since I had dual citizenship and the French women had been over racing with us in the US a few weeks earlier, they had told me, you know, if you want to come and race with us in France, you know, we've got a bunch of races in Brittany and, you know, give us a shout. So I, I called them up and I said, look, I'm, I'm coming. <laughs> and so I finished that season in August in Brittany. And it was, it was a different style of racing. And in, in the US, there's a lot of criteriums, a lot of short course, fast um, money type races, which are great, but there weren't as many road races and, um, you know, hills and stuff like that. And tactically it was um, a little bit different as well. So I did all these races in Brittany and then started racing with the men and then won a men's race and the national, the French national team director offered me a spot on the team. And I was like, yeah, you know, let me just go home, get my stuff. And I went back to the US, got my stuff. And then moved into a really small town in nowhere, Brittany, because that's where the most uh, cyclists lived and uh, started my life over again. You eventually went on to win two silver medals at the Olympics. So tell us about those experiences. My first year in France, so that, that at the end of that summer, um, yeah, I moved in. And the following year, I won the French Nationals, won my first uh, World Cup and French Nationals on the track, which... Um, the, the track was very unique because you have no brakes and I'd never ridden the track and it scared the absolute shit out of me, but it was also, you know, another serious endorphin boost. And um, I was winning all the time trials and prologues and the road races. So the track coach, you know, asked me to start training with them for um, the Olympics as well. Um, the first Olympics I raced were Barcelona and I should have been selected on the track, but there was a big, political scam and um, I didn't get chosen. I did the road race and um, yeah, there was just the road race. I um, had a, we were training in altitude in Toluca, Mexico and six weeks before I crashed, uh, broke four ribs and punctured a lung. So I, the fact that we stayed in altitude because I couldn't take the plane with my lung as soon after um, gave me a bit of, you know, a, a, um, a positive edge coming back so soon, but I was still came up a little bit short for Barcelona. Um, a silver medal in Atlanta. So my final was against an Italian, Antonella Bludi, who is using what we call the Superman position where you're, you were flat out on the bike and you had three point pressure points, pretty much your hands. It was like a force opposition. You were pushing with your hands in front of you and your feet behind you. And you would get yourself in such an aerodynamic position that you could only go faster. And um, I had asked the Federation if they would put that position on my bike as well. And they said, no, that it was too short and that I'd already beaten her without it. And, um, I, you know, I think I, I 
got a little bit overwhelmed because it was the Olympics and it was, um, you know, the first ones that I had a real chance at. And I kind of let that get to me, um, ended up getting second, which isn't bad, but I lost the final. So it's, it was a, a difficult uh, thing to lose, especially that I had always beaten Antonella before. And then three weeks later, we had the world championships and I used that position and broke the world record and Antonella in the final. So it, you know, it was, um, the, the Olympics were always a, a difficult one for me to get my head around, but um, I raced every event in Atlanta. I raced the road, the time trial and the uh, um, the track and I, the road as well, I could have done something and just um, mentally kind of went around it instead of uh, attacking it head on. So um, a great learning experience, but it was, uh, uh yeah definitely um a mind fuck if i can say that <laughs> you absolutely can what is what is that feeling like though when you break the world record it was so amazing because i had put everything together and put everything in place that needed to be put in place to perform there and i knew that so it was um I, I can't say it was easy, but it was, I just felt at peace. You know, the same when I won the, my first individual title at the Worlds in 94, I, I was at peace because I knew I had done all the preparation that needed to be done. There was no, no dot or T or, you know, anything uncrossed or unchecked. I mean, all the boxes were ticked, so nothing could go wrong. And, and it seemed, you know, I mean, certain world championships just, flew you know they were really smooth and they went the way they should have gone and it just seems like it was only the olympics where i couldn't get that <laughs> get that to happen really there must be so much pressure at an olympics i mean i can't even imagine the pressure there were ten thousand people in the pin drop when we were on the starting line and yeah it is i mean and you know people are, are watching you you don't want to let people down you're you start thinking about, you know, everyone who's helped you get to where you're going and, and how many people you could impact, um, you know, if you did, did it right, so to speak. So it's, uh, it is, and a lot of it is the, the people in your head, you know, I mean, it's, that's really what it comes down to at the end of the day. But to answer your initial question of what it feels like to break the world record, it was just amazing. I mean, to, to look up and see the scoreboard and to see new world record, it was just, wow, you know, and the three of us had all broken the world record that same morning in the heats. So for the, to break it again in the final was, was pretty cool. Cause that it's, it's hard to repeat um, as fast a ride in the, in the afternoon as in the morning. We're Amy and Nancy Harrington, and you're listening to the Passionistas Project podcast and our interview with Marion Clignier. To learn more about her work as an advocate for the professionalization of women's sports, follow her on Twitter at Action Marion. Now here's more of our interview with Marion. What quality do you think you possess that has helped you achieve so much in the sport? You know, I think having epilepsy was a huge factor. I think it made me push myself harder. Um, and I often do say that I'm not sure if I didn't start riding because of epilepsy, I would have gone as far um, because I really think and believe that that's what pushed me to push myself harder. So um, it was something, I mean, I had to prove to myself that um, it wasn't a handicap and that it wasn't going to change anything I set myself out to do. Um, I also had to prove to my parents that um, 
the fact that I didn't finish college or, you know, wasn't as intellectual as, um, as my family members didn't make me useless. Um, and, you know, that, that was a big proving ground um, for me there. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, and I think I inherited my father's character, which is not always um, a plus, but that's something I've worked on <laughs> for the years. So, um, I, you know, it's uh, I'm kind of being the CEO of your own destiny and taking things into your own hands, your own hands and running it like your own little, you know, corporation or company and just, you know, you've got an objective, go for it. So head down and go. So when and why did you finally stop cycling competitively? I stopped at the international level with women for a first, well, a first time in 2000. Um, it was after the Worlds in Manchester, uh, after the Sydney Olympics, which were just the, probably the best Olympics ever. It was really, um, you know, Atlanta was pretty much run by Coca-Cola for Coca-Cola. Sydney was run by passionate athletes for athletes. And it was, I, I think the difference too was that we lived uh, in the Olympic Village, whereas in Atlanta, we were outside because it was easier. Um, and that was really cool. Um, uh, it was, yeah, and yeah, you could just see that everything was centered around the games happening for the athletes and having an impact on the, on the population as well. Um, but after that, uh, I just didn't have, felt like I didn't have the energy. I'd already fought back from having inflammatory arthritis after Atlanta. And I took two years off and came back, won the Worlds in 99, then in 2000, and then another Olympic medal. And I, I just um, didn't know what else I could do. And I, I was tired of always having to kind of, fight isn't really the word, but always having to to find money, find finances. And I was training as hard as, if not more sometimes than my male counterparts. And I was racing mostly with the men because that was the best preparation to race internationally with the women. So, you know, I was doing men's races locally. I, I won some men's races, but you know, they were all getting paid and I wasn't. So um, I just felt there was a lack of, of respect and that I wanted to do something more. So. I took a little bit of time off and then thought um, that the only thing I knew how to do, you know, was ride my bike. So I wanted to make a comeback for Athens, but it wasn't in my heart. It was more, this is what I have to do to survive. And it just, it wasn't a good, uh, it wasn't a good decision, but I, I really, I didn't know how to transition, get myself out of what I had gotten myself into. And I had moved to France to become, a, you know, a bike racer and I, and I didn't know what else to do after that. So it, it made things quite difficult. Um, it was a big challenge. And um, yeah, it, it, transitioning is a really big challenge for athletes as it is for other professions, but it's, uh, it's kind of hard to step down from that, that high, if you will. So what did you do when you transitioned? First, I had a contract um, as an elite athlete working for the post office, and they offered me you know, a job running a, a local post office. <laughs> just, nope, can't see myself doing that. And it, it just, it, yeah, I mean, it didn't raise one arm hair on my, uh, my arm, but there was something that interested me in what they were doing, which was um, they had, I think they had 19 athletes that they were helping. So I called the director of comms in Paris and I said, look, can I work with you on 
um, the communications and how you're working with the athletes and the post office. I think there's things we could do to make this work better for you and the athletes. And the person I spoke to didn't even know who the athletes were. And I said, oh, well, let me tell you, <laughs> you know, I had the, the entire list and they, they weren't interested. And that, that really, that was really painful um, um, because they couldn't explain what they were doing. They, they were just sort of going with the flow. And I think there was also a deal where they were getting money from the minister of sports to hire athletes. So it wasn't a loss for them. They were making, um, they were getting some communications out of it, but um, they, they could have made it a little bit more beneficial for themselves and for the athletes. So um, I sort of rode that wave as long as I could, meaning um, I kind of took advantage of the situation since I was still um, known from Sydney and uh, Atlanta. I didn't really have to go to work. I was still getting a paycheck. And I started doing a speaking tour um, to try to encourage uh, neurologists to encourage people with epilepsy to do sports and, and to use sports as an outlet and as an, maybe a way to integrate and also to get people to connect with their bodies. So maybe they could tell when a seizure was coming on because a lot of people have no idea. So um, I did kind of a, a worldwide speaking tour, did a lot of talk shows and a lot of public speaking and it was all good fun. It went really well. Um, I had some fantastic training from some of the, the companies actually who, who make um, medication and who aren't, I mean, there's one company in particular that wasn't uh, an evil uh, pharmaceutical company. So, so that was reassuring. Um, and then I took classes on uh, coaching, um, sports coaching, you know, to be, to, to coach in cycling and to work as a director sportif and got asked to coach a men's team, um, to help them develop into the, the pro ranks. So I started coaching, uh, men and working as director sportif, um, and, and things happened kind of quickly for a certain amount of years, there was um, the New Zealand national team had a base not far from my house. So I worked with them. I worked with the men's team. Um, then I got asked to work uh, for a pro men's team who was racing the Tour de France. So I was probably one of, if not the first woman coach of a pro men's team. And, and that was good fun. I mean, it was interesting. Um, um, it, it was, yeah, it was a kind of a, a revolutionary period in in my life and probably for theirs as well um what i find quite strange is that the majority of coaches in all sports are men um, and they have no clue about um, cycles and periods and menopause and how all of that works into a system uh, nutritionally or physiologically and they're not coached on it so just now there are some men who are um, informing themselves um, um, and using applications to track cycles so the girls know when they're getting their periods and readjusting their training. Um, so I did I took a lot of courses in nutrition as well to form myself on that and, and, and things kind of snowballed into really doing as much research as I could to find out all the little innovations, all the, the peaks and the perks and, and different things. And what's ironic is the most research I did was after I worked as a coach. Um, I stepped back from that and then uh, Airbus asked me to put together a program to help women who had the potential to be top managers build their resilience. So that's when BAM was founded and um, 
and that went really well for for about five years and then it stopped with the covid um uh and so i I have always had a love affair with the mountains. I could see them from my house in Toulouse. And I finally just said, fuck it, I'm gonna move to the mountains. I mean, I've just had enough of living right outside of Toulouse and, and there was not much I could do there, not more there than anywhere else. Um, so I found a fixer upper house at the foot of the Utikam, which is one of the mythic tour climbs and um, spent about a year fixing it up. And I live on the top floor and my balcony looks out over the Utikam. Um, it's pitch dark right now, so otherwise I would take you for a tour on the balcony, but <laughs> you won't see anything. Um, and then I, I rent the two bottom, there's two apartments underneath. So the, the house was, it, it's kind of an art deco looking type house and it was already separated into three apartments. So I rent out the two bottom apartments. Um, I just started renting them in August and for the season for summer and, um, and then the ski season, we'll see if, if there's any snow, but it went really well. So. I'll see how it goes uh, for next season. And that is helping me kind of um, transition into my next step. And I, I kind of say, I mean, I, I still feel like I'm in transition and constantly thinking of what am I gonna do when I grow up? So um, I'm not sure it's something you ever <laughs> grow out of or get out of. <laughs> so, um, and in terms, you asked about passion. I mean, a couple, something else I'm passionate about is getting um, educating people who have epilepsy on how to step out of their comfort zone and feel good about themselves and um, sharing the tools I learned and, and the things I was able to pick up with them so they can get more confident and, and not feel like they're not one of the crowd just because they have epilepsy. I mean, it's, um, it's still something that's very, um, uh, very unknown. Um, a lot of people still freak out if they see me have a seizure and they don't know what to do or what to say. And, um, I, you know, and I know more and more kids who seem to be having, uh, you know, epilepsy. So, and, and they all, I mean, today's generation is a little bit different. The last generation seemed to have suffered more from it, but um, it's, uh, yeah, for some reason, it's not really picked up as a major um um, condition that should be taught about in schools. You mentioned before we started the interview that you are starting a new tour. So tell us about that. In 2019, myself, another retired um, uh, champ French champion, and a few women who are still racing actively on the circuit decided we'd had enough and that we had to take matters into our own hands and create um, what would be actually considered a syndicate, except that since women aren't considered professional in France, we can only call it an association. So we created the French Association of Women Cyclists. And our first objective was to get the women racing on the world tour recognized as professional cyclists. So that box is ticked. Now we're trying to get them recognized by the league. The National League of Cycling is who gives the men their professional license. So we put a woman on the board of directors to sit through all the meetings and see how they're run and see if she can coerce them into having a woman section. And so far we're on the right track there. And our other objective was to start to create an international women's tour of the Pyrenees because um, you know, women's, when we raced um, in the nineties and yeah, all through the 90s, there, there was always a huge block of racing in France for all the international pelotons. So we'd have, 
you know, for three to six weeks, we'd have the Dutch, the Americans, the Australians, the English, the Germans, all over here racing. And then all of a sudden everything stopped and there's hardly any more stage races in France anymore. So in 2014 or 15, I started going to see the director of the men's tour. And with a group of women, we went to see them, to see him together to, to kind of beg, beg, scream or plead, whichever <laughs> worked the best to get them to reorganize a women's tour. And um, we had three meetings in three or four months and we were hoping to get a week and we ended up getting a day, which was called La Course by Le Tour. So that went on for five years. And last year and the year before, I kept going back to see the director and say, look, you know, what, what is the worst that can happen if you organize a women's tour? And finally, this year, they announced that they're, they're going to relaunch the women's tour de France and they don't want to do a one-off or a two-off or a three-off. They want it to last you know, for 300 years, if I quote what he said. So while they were getting that going, we had taken matters into our own hands and decided that because we both live in the Pyrenees, my co-president and I said, look, let's do an international women's tour of the Pyrenees and have mountaintop finishes, which no other race does. And it's, it's really rare that women have mountaintop finishes. And also the more important thing to us, after seeing the prize list at Paris-Roubaix, where the first woman won 1,500 francs and the first man, uh, not francs, euros, and the first man won 30,000 euros. We yeah, we said, well, we're gonna do the prize money a little bit differently. So what I've suggested several times is that they, uh, the International Cycling Union puts um, um, a cap on the prize money so that men and women are paid the same per kilometer raced. So the men will race 200K, they'll get more, but that's because they've raced longer and women, you know, if they only race 100K, then they'll make the same as a guy would if he raced 100K. So, and, and I think that that's fair, but you know, they have yet to implement that. But anyway, the first ever women's tour of the Pyrenees will be happening August 5th through 7th. And uh, we're super excited about it. We've um, spent, endless hours meeting with local towns and mayors and all the politicians and, and you know, getting into a whole different uh, spectrum than we're used to. But we've also been really helped a lot by a woman who's, um, she, here she's called a deputy. So um, I guess it would be equivalent to Congress, a member of Congress in the US. And she's helped to get us into the right companies, seeing the right people and, you know, taking us to see everyone. So we've gotten some good sponsorship on board. And um, tomorrow, in fact, we've been invited to a meeting um, on the advancements of technology and sports for women um, that's put on by one of the companies that's sponsoring us. So that's, it's, it's cool. I mean, it's, it's opening a lot of different doors and uh, a new adventure begins. <laughs> we read that you hosted the annual uh, Marion Clinier ride for epilepsy. Can yep. you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That started um, 13 years ago. And the idea in the beginning was there's a local school. There's two schools in France that are dedicated to kids who have epilepsy. So one is in Brittany and one is in Ligue which was right near my house in Toulouse. And I was the, uh, the French would say godmother, but there, there must be another word for that in English. Um, kind of the mentor, I guess, of the kids at the school. So I went and spent some time with them, went mountain biking with them on campus and 
um, stuff like that. And the idea was to, to get um, a ride going to raise money to build a gym for the school because they don't have a gym. So in the, in the first years, the idea was to, to get money to, to find a, a cure for epilepsy. So we had for four years uh, sponsored research on a particular molecule. And then from the fifth year till now, um, we've been able to raise enough money to build a gym. So the gym will be, they'll start building in the spring of 2023. And hopefully the gym will open in 2023. So, uh, yeah. So, and I hate trophies. So the trophies are made by the local chocolate factory out of chocolate and they're absolutely delicious. <laughs> so, yeah. That's so, and that will be happening in 2022 in, uh, on the 28th of May in a town in the Gers called Mauvaisin. So it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be even hillier than it was before. But um, yeah, it's a fun ride. The idea is really to have a good ambiance. There's a local beer company that, you know, sponsors the beer at the finish. And, uh, and yeah, it's just good fun. What's your definition of success? Happiness and peace, you know, peacefulness. I mean, um, you know, right now waking up to the Utakama when I sit on my balcony in the morning, it's, I just, I feel really good about being here. Um, you know, it's, I'm, I'm not really into the success that people are into of, you know, it's by your paycheck or by making X amount of money. It's really just, it's finding that place where I feel good and about myself and what I'm doing. Um, and then there's little, um, little, miniature successes you know like getting this international race off the ground will be a huge success for us and for women to come and and you know hoping to leave um some sort of um, footprint that other women can follow um, and make it easier for them you know opening doors and and kicking down doors if we have to at times but yeah so it doesn't seem like you have a problem with motivation, but we all do. So do you ever feel unmotivated? And what secrets do you have to get you back on track? I had a recent uh, bout with lack of motivation. Um, October uh, October was, was really, I had a rough spot because a lot of what I do is volunteer. Um, I haven't, I don't get a regular paycheck. So once again, I still have to go out and find uh, my own, funding and uh, and I just had had enough and um, um, for some reason October was was pretty intense I had just moved here so I was still unpacking and finishing things in the house and October October 4th I had a huge seizure um, I still have about one a year but I felt it coming on so I knew it was going to happen but it was um, it was it was I mean, I, I say it was a big one because, well, I woke up and I had three scratches on my face, so I don't have a cat. So I'm guessing that I scratched myself um, during the seizure. Um, and then I slept 14 hours. So I, I think I obviously needed to rest and just give my body and my mind a break. And that I hadn't been doing because I was constantly trying to figure out how I was going to make things work, make the next thing happen and and get whatever objective to happen, happen. So, um, you know, sometimes when things don't, but the pieces don't fit into the puzzle, the best thing to do is just put the puzzle away and just stop and just not, not, not do anything, but just give yourself a break and let your, your mind in peace. And um, I'd say 
probably took the longest break I've taken in a long time for seven straight days. I didn't do any sports other than walk the dog and, and even walking the dog seemed like a huge mission. I mean, I had to drag myself down two flights of stairs out the door and, and I ended up um, that whole, that week after the seizure sleeping two, two and a half hours more every night. Um, and then I'll have to add that three days after that seizure, I ended up having a bone graft because after having so many seizures over the years, when you seize, you end up, your, your teeth, you know, they, they clap really hard when you convulse. And I ended up breaking the, all of these teeth here and, and the molars um, right below the roots so that I had to have implants um, done. So these two got done last year. I was toothless for a while in the, my front teeth last year, and that was really sexy. Um, and I didn't have enough bone on one of the side teeth. So they had to do a bone graft three days after the seizure. And that put me out completely. I was, uh, couldn't get out of my own way for a good week. And then mentally that played with me a little bit. I, I you know, felt like I was, um, you know, I, I knew, I always know the motivation will come back, but I was kind of getting depressed about everything um, at the same time. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how it always turns itself around, but it, it always does. Um, I, I think I just managed to get enough rest and just let things work themselves out. And then finally, uh, you know, I, about 10 days afterwards, I uh, managed to to get myself out and get on the bike. And, and that always helps too, is just to go and do something intense, get the endorphins back again. I definitely am an endorphin junkie and endorphins really are what help me function. I mean, you know, some people it's, it's heroin or alcohol for me, it's <laughs> endorphins. And, um, and once I get my endorphin kick again, I'm back kind of on my cycle, if you will. And that really helps me uh, get going again. Do you have a mantra you live by? I had one when I was racing that helped me suppress pain. I was sort of separating my body from, you know, the physical and the mental. It was almost more like a self-hypnosis. But um, I'd say my mantra that I live by really is where there's a will, there's a way. You know, it's, um, you know, if you, <laughs> if you want something bad enough, then you'll figure out how to get it. What advice would you give to a young woman who wants to be a competitive athlete? To do her homework, <laughs> you know, to train, to do her homework, to be humble, um, to be grateful for the competitors she's up against and, and not, you know, have the, the kill my competitor attitude, but, you know, play with them, have fun because they're what's making you stronger. And if you didn't have them, then you, you know, you wouldn't be able to be as strong or stronger than you are. So, um, yeah, to, to, Put your head down and go <laughs> and smile it creates more endorphins when you, if you smile while you're competing you definitely produce more endorphins thanks for listening to our interview with marion clinier we wanted to give you a special treat this week each year we host the power of passionistas women's equality summit and we ask women many of them from marginalized communities to share stories on topics that are most important to them one of our speakers was Kylie Stone, a descendant of the Karandali, Waka Waka, and Kaluli First Nations in Australia, with 25 years in the business of storytelling and an intrinsic talent in the power of personal stories to create meaningful connections. Certified in the neuroscience of resilience, 
Kylie's mission is to disrupt the status quo on the traditional view of leadership and enable people with the courage to take action in direct accordance with their vision, values, passion, and purpose. Here's Kylie's story on the power of transformation. Being a leader is not easy. COVID has had a massive impact on women in particular. You know, here I am in Sydney, Australia, we've had another round of lockdowns and I'm juggling three children homeschooling while trying to run a business and try and get this talk to you. Um, it has not been easy. Um, in terms of leadership, I got my first role as a leader when I was 27. I took the traditional path that most Westerners take you know, go to school, get a good education, go to college to get a good job, you know, work hard and get a pay rise, go to university and get a promotion until you get a seat at the table and you become a leader. On the 11th of April, 2011, I walked back into the office after having three children in three years. And for the first time in my life, I thought, I can't see how to make this work. I wanted part-time but my boss wanted full-time. I negotiated splitting the role, but within months, I was frustrated. After 12 years of climbing the ladder, I felt like baby houseman in Dirty Dancing, sitting in the corner, isolated and ostracized. So I went back to university. I got a coach, a mentor. I stockpiled my bedside table with Robin Sharma's How to Lead Without a Title, Google search inside yourself, the great work of your life, and Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In. And I discovered one universal challenge, our view of leadership. We identify leaders with a title. We think great leaders make extraordinary sacrifices. And we think leadership is for someone who has a seat at the table with a long list of credentials. But this view of leadership is an illusion. And it's preventing us from realizing our potential as leaders. It's stifling our opportunities to advance as leaders. It's stifling our effectiveness as leaders. And it's also stifling our opinions about those who are leaders. But there is another way. I call it the A-game. Four practices that have helped me and others in realizing our potential as leaders, no matter who we are, where we come from, or what we do. Now, I come from a long line of women who fought against discrimination. In fact, we talk about leadership as people who mobilize others towards a vision. When we talk about mobilizing ourselves, it starts with having the courage to tell the truth about what's not working. So the first practice is acknowledgement. So I took my CV, which was a listicle of 20 things I'd done in my 20s, and I rewrote it to focus on my strengths and my accomplishments. And I'm standing in line waiting for coffee when a colleague asked, how are you? I was like, pissed off. I've been sidelined as a leader just because I'm part-time. She says, same here. That's when I realized I was not alone. I started a group for women who, like myself, were struggling with how to advance as a leader while taking care of kids and dealing with a lack of equality in leadership. I was shocked. Diverse group of women, all senior and ostracized. Every one of us working hard on valuing everyone else while not valuing ourselves. You know, it's easy to blame the company or society or the government uh, and in some cases even blame ourselves. 
but this is our life, not someone else's. So the second practice is accountability. You know, being accountable is an opportunity to carve out a new future. It's an opportunity to let go of blaming ourselves and to look at what do I need? How can I move forward instead of waiting for the roll of the dice to see what somebody else is going to do? I'm in a leadership program. My peers nominated me to be a leader. Next thing I know, I'm standing at the front of the room waiting for objections and the leader calls out, being a leader is a bad idea. I wonder, is it work-life balance? Do I have the right skills? Is it the imposter syndrome? Or is it discrimination? You know, I'm an Aboriginal woman, a descendant of the stolen generations of the Waka Waka and Kalali nations, a generation of Aboriginal people who were forcibly removed from their families. My great-grandmother was two, my grandmother was three, and my mother was five. Despite being only 16 when I was born, my mother fought against forced adoption, making me the first woman in four generations to not be forcibly taken from my family. Now, I've overcome a lot of adversity, abuse, infidelity, postnatal depression, discrimination, autoimmune condition, but none worse than my own judgment that I don't belong, that what I have to say doesn't matter. But when we can authentically own that we are accountable for how life turns out, we have enormous power. So creating things like future-based statements, like a vision and purpose, are incredibly powerful. But in my experience, they mostly just end up on a wall or in a document. You know, a famous psychotherapist once said that we're our best when we have clarity about our goals, when we're taking actions in pursuit of those goals, when we're seeing results in line with those goals, and when our thoughts and actions do not conflict. Now that is a lot easier said than done. So the third practice is alignment. So it was the 5th of March, 2014, I got an email that a colleague had, had taken his life. It was my son's seventh birthday. I walked in the door, I sat down, and my husband starts crying. The business is going into administration, we're gonna lose the home. We were two weeks away from launching our very first event for the Women's Mentoring Group, and I stopped. I rang and told them everything. I said, we need to stop it. And they said, no, take whatever you need. So I took the time off to take care. I realized at that time, there was nothing more important than taking care of my family and my own well-being. So the final practice is action. And it sounds simple because it is. And yet how many of us get stuck for days, weeks, months, years, sometimes forever, not taking action on the things that are truly important to us. See, when we take action despite what we think, we realize that we are much stronger than we give ourselves credit for. In fact, not taking action is what leads to the downward spiral of doubt. In 2015, I did it, I took a leap, I started my own business. And in 2018, I was acknowledged by our Office for Women for my contribution to advancing women in leadership. And last year, I was acknowledged by LinkedIn's top 20, as a top 20 voices. After 28 years of being in the business of storytelling, I discovered that the real power of storytelling lies in our own stories. You know, telling my own story has been one of the bravest things that I've ever done.
So taking action despite what we think is not some magic spell. It is about taking action despite the challenges and on our own views to see what is and isn't possible. Being a leader is not easy, but it is simple. It's not anything to do with having a title. It's got nothing to do with self-sacrifice or having a long list of credentials. Being a leader is about having a passion for something that's much bigger than ourselves. So to anyone else who thinks being a leader is a bad idea, I invite you to join me in what I'm officially declaring a new paradigm of leadership, an opportunity to carve out a new future and take action in direct alignment with our vision, our values and our purpose. You know, Margaret Mead once said, never underestimate the power of a small group of committed people to change the world. In fact, it is the only thing that ever has. Thanks for listening to the Passionistas Project podcast and our interview with Marion Clinier. To learn more about her work as an advocate for the professionalization of women's sports, follow her on Twitter at Action Marion. And be sure to visit thepassionistasproject.com to sign up for our mailing list, find all the ways you can follow us on social media, and join our worldwide community of women working together to level the playing field for us all. We'll be back next week with another passionista who is defining success on her own terms and breaking down the barriers for herself and women everywhere. Until then, stay well and stay passionate.